0: worship in song, which is one of the many ways that we worship here. And this is one of those times with that last song, It Is Well, that you see a really, really awesome intersection of worship through singing, going right into worship through studying God's word. We worship a lot of different ways. We worship by singing, we worship by praying, by giving, by studying God's word. But in this case, the song that we just sang, the last song called Is Well. If you're not familiar with the backstory of that song, it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford, who was an American businessman, a strong Christian, in the Chicago area in the late uh, mid to late 1800s. Men and his wife, uh, Anna, they had gone through amazing tragedy. They had a four-year-old son who died of scarlet fever. He, Spafford himself, had um, suffered significant financial loss, the Chicago fire of 1871. And as a result of those two things, Horatio and Anna decided that they were going to take a little break. They were going to go to England. They were going to spend some time really on a sabbatical, basically, uh, over there. Now, Spafford himself had some business dealings to to kind of finish up. So they decided Anna would take their four remaining daughters over to England. At that time, he traveled by boat. And uh, unfortunately, in that journey, there was a collision between the boat they were on and another boat, and all four of their daughters died. So he's had a son that died from scarlet fever. He's had tremendous financial loss, and now he's lost all four of his daughters. And his response to that was to write the song we just sang. His response to that was to write down, it is well with my soul, that through it all, through all of this, my eyes are on you. And that is just an amazing encouragement for us. It's an amazing inspiration for us that as we go through life, because life is, is messy, you know, you know we, we have difficult times, we have tough times. sometimes we even experience tragedy, maybe not to the to the level of the, of the Spaffords, but we experience tragedy sometimes. And it's amazing to watch or to study. You know, how he reacted, how he responded to that tragedy. Now, when I said there's an intersection here, what we're going to be today is back in our our study in Genesis, we're going to be in chapters 33 and 34. And unfortunately, we're going to see kind of a different reaction to tragedy as we continue to study the story of Laban. And my my prayer is, is that as you go through the week and you reflect back on on our worship today, as you look back at at, at the message, you're you're in your prayer time, that that you're able to kind of take a look at the response and and the dependence on God that that Spafford had and the response and perhaps the lack or the inconsistent um, dependence on God that that we're going to see Jacob has and better understand how God is leading you through life, how God is leading you through difficult times. So again, we're in Genesis 33 and 34, and what we're going to see today as, as, as we look at Jacob, and if you look at the story of Jacob, I think there's, there's, if there was one overarching word that you could use to describe Jacob, the word would be deceptive. You know, he's, he's a deceiver. I mean, God has chosen him, God has worked through him mightily, uh, and will continue to work through him mightily. There, there are, he has victories in life, but he has been a very deceptive person through many of the stories we see. And what we're going to see today in, in these passages is that there is a tragic cost to deception. That there's always a cost when we deceive. And... Uh, So where we are, Jacob has just, uh, he's moving back uh, into, he's been told by God to move back into uh, the land of his family. Uh, He's been up uh, for over 20 years, up with his uncle and now father-in-law Laban, uh, deceiving and being deceived uh, in that period of time. And he's coming back now. Uh, He has just at the end of chapter 32, he spent an entire night wrestling with God, literally in an an amazing way. Uh, And now he is coming to reconcile, to, to get back together with his brother Esau, who when we last saw Esau, Esau was vowing to kill Jacob. Okay? So that's what we're going to pick up. And we're going to see several things in here. And the first, first point we're going to see is that Jacob and Esau do reunite. We see that in Genesis 33, verses 1 through 11. Now, before I put the, the, the verses up here, um, there's a ton of, of scripture. There's a ton of text in these two passages, these two chapters today. Actually, 51 verses. We can't go through them all. So if you look up here and you go, hey, there's a, there's a sentence or two missing. Yeah, there is. That's okay. Okay, but what we hit was the, the major, major teaching points, the major points of the story. I just encourage you through the week to kind of go back and maybe pick up the rest of it, but you're, you're not missing anything by what we, what we took out here. So let's, let's read Genesis 33, of 1 through 11 together here and see what happens. So Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. But Esau ran to him and met him, man to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company I have met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord, my Lord being uh, Esau. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep, Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. Thus he urged him and he took it. Now, when you read the story of Jacob, especially as he's he's coming home in this portion, Jacob is fearing the worst as he's coming home. Because again, he had stolen a blessing through deception that should have been Esau's. And Esau vowed to kill him. So to save his life, um, Esau went up to his uncle Laban, up in what is today, present day, um, northern Iraq, almost 500 miles away, and, and basically kind of hid out for a while, hoping that Esau would, would kind of calm down. And, and when Esau makes the, has the question, he says, what, what, what is all this company I have seen? Well, if you look in chapter 32, you see Jacob as, as a form of like almost a peace offering. He had sent wave after wave after wave of, of gifts, primarily animals. You know, he had become very prosperous and he sent him to, to, uh, to, 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 to Esau to, to, to show, try and get favor in his sight. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's almost kind of a back and forth, kind of a goofy back and forth with them. Part of it's cultural. But, you know, here, here's Esau. He's received all these all these gifts, all these animals. And the first thing he says to, uh, to uh, after he reunites and embraces with Jacob, he goes, what's all this stuff? Like, he doesn't know what, you know, goats and, and sheep and all this stuff are. And, and then there's this kind of goofy, um, Oh, please take it. Oh, but I couldn't. Oh, but I might insist. Oh, but I couldn't possibly. You know, it's kind of back and forth, kind of goofy. You know, and eventually we see that Jacob insisted and he took it. And there's a reason that Jacob insisted, and it, it gets to cultural at the time, was you didn't accept a gift from an enemy. So until Esau accepted the gift and said, I will take it, Jacob didn't know whether he was, they were friendly, whether they were okay, whether he was still gonna kill him. So this was very important to to Esau, excuse me, Jacob. But the thing that Jacob didn't know was that God had already changed Esau's heart. Again, if if you go back to chapter 27, Esau is vowing to kill him. He's crying out, he's screaming, I'm gonna kill this guy as soon as my dad dies. You know, and then we come back to, up to chapter 33 and they're embracing together. They're, they're, they're hugging as brothers. They're weeping in joy over being back together. You'll notice there's absolutely no mention whatsoever of the previous hurts, the previous deception that Jacob had inflicted on him. And the reason for that is when God changes our hearts, when it's over, it's over. We don't have to revisit things. We don't have to you know, dig up old bones. We don't have to dig up the old hurts. It's done. Jacob had sinned greatly. I mean, he stole a blessing that didn't belong to him, so a pretty elaborate um, deception. And his burdens was repentance. His burdens was, was to, to accept and acknowledge that he had sinned and ask for forgiveness. Esau's burden was to give that forgiveness. And let, let's be honest here. The only reason they're able to reunite is because Esau gave that forgiveness. If he didn't, none of this happens that we just read. Now, Esau, or excuse me, today, we, we live, to put it best, in a very easily offended society. I mean, like, we can get offended at, like, anything, you know? And it, unfortunately, we're kind of to the point almost where, like, forgiveness is a sign of weakness. Like, you, you can't, I mean, if you, if you forgive and give it up and everything, oh, man, you're, you're giving up ground, you shouldn't be given. And, like, nothing could be more wrong. I mean, that's, that's, that's a horrible idea. It, we have to understand, when sin happens, yeah, we need to recognize it. We need to call it out for what it is. We need to try to stop it if it's still going on. If we can, we try to fix it or remedy it as best we can. But we also need to forgive and reconcile. It doesn't mean we accept the sin. It doesn't mean we tolerate it. We say it's okay. It means we heal, and then we move through it. We don't stay f- stuck in it. And that's an important thing to understand. Now, now for us... Forgiveness requires that we give up something. Maybe we're giving up our anger. Maybe we're giving up our bitterness. Maybe we're giving up getting back that thing we had. You know, someone stole something from us and we, we, we're gonna forgive, whether or not they give back or not. We've kind of put aside the fact that they still stole that thing from us. We're, we're giving that up to get reconciliation, to get forgiveness. Really what we're get, reconciling or giving up is to get peace because at the heart of peace is forgiveness and reconciliation between us and God. Look, we would not have reconciliation with God unless there was forgiveness from him. We couldn't be reconciled to him unless Jesus Christ had gone to the cross to serve as a perfect substitute for us, to rise three days later when we place our faith in what he accomplished through his death and resurrection, we can be saved. Jesus gave up a lot for that so that we could have forgiveness. It's at the heart of our relationship with God but it's also at our heart of the heart of our relationship with other people. We can't be along, getting along with people when we're star- still harboring hate or anger or bitterness. We just can't. When we have a loss or we're hurt or someone sins against us, you know, there's absolutely grief and pain from that. That always comes. But you gotta ask yourself, isn't, isn't that grief and pain, isn't that enough? Without adding more of our own pain on by the bitterness or the anger, regardless of how this, this this thing happened, whether it was an accident like Horatio Spafford and his wife went through in in their tragedy, or maybe it was carelessness, you know, like an unattentive driver, you know, hits you and damages your car or worse yet hurts or kills someone that you love. You know, or maybe it's just plain evil. The, the truth is the source of the of of the of the hurt doesn't really matter when it comes to forgiveness. You're never going to have that peace unless you give it up. The event and the circumstances, they might not go away ever, but the unsatisfied bitterness can, and that's up to us. I mean, if you look, Esau went from the screaming, raging, angry vowing to kill guy in in chapter twenty seven, to a guy in chapter 33 who's now embracing and hugging and kissing and weeping in joy. And I think Paul talks about this really well in in Romans 12. I wanna illustrate this just real quickly. If we look in Romans 12, Paul's writing he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, when we talk about what depends on you, what depends on us is our forgiveness, whether we give forgiveness. Like I said a moment ago, Jacob's burden was repentance. Esau's burden was forgiveness. That was what he was responsible for. The the Esau of chapter 27 could not live peaceably until he allowed God to change his heart and become the forgiving Esau of chapter 33. He just couldn't. And when that happened, that made the reunion possible. Now they're able to reunite. And it's really a great testimony to what happens when we allow God to transform us and to change our hearts. Now, what we're going to see next, though, unfortunately, Jacob hasn't gone through quite as complete a transformation as his brother Esau. Because the next thing we see is that Jacob keeps a separation between himself and Esau. We see this in verses 12 to 17. We'll read that together. It says, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. Let the Lord pass on ahead of his servant until I come to my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, okay, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sikoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock so if you want to summarize this passage here, okay, the, the the two twin brothers have come together. They haven't seen each other in over 20 years. And and, and Esau says, hey, man, let's, let's go home together. And Jacob says, that's ah, kind of hard. I'll catch up to you. Then Jacob goes, okay, excuse me, Esau goes, okay, tell you what, I'll, I got a bunch of guys. I got 400 guys here. Let me leave a few with you. They can help you along since it's difficult. And uh, and Jacob goes, why? Well, Well, the answer to the why is what you just said, you know? It's a care to you. You've got young kids. You've got a bunch of flocks. It's tough for you. You could use some help. Yet Jacob makes a separation by saying, no, I don't want to go with you. And, and, and what's really interesting is Esau didn't say anything about like, the pace that they were going to go back on the way home. He didn't say, hey, man, let's, let's go to heaven together. We can get home tomorrow. He just said, let's go together. Remember also, and we just talked a moment ago, that, that Jacob had sent wave after wave after wave of gifts in the form of livestock to, to Esau. So the same problem that Jacob is complaining about, I've got all these livestock and they're a care to him. Well, guess what? Esau has the same problem because Jacob gave him all the livestock. So it's not like he can run a, a whole lot faster than, than Jacob could either. And then let's look at at, at Jacob's heart for a second. This is very interesting. If we we go back to verses, excuse me, chapters 31 and 32, where Jacob leaves from Laban, okay? We don't see a ton of concern over going slow for the children and the livestock when he's running away from Laban while Laban's out in the field so he can get back early. But suddenly when it's his twin brother trying to get back together, oh man, this is kind of hard. He's choosing to separate himself. So I think there's a couple of points that we really want to learn out of this. And I think the most important one is that relationships require intentional work and they require intentional effort. So someone we can't build a real relationship with someone when we're trying to separate ourselves from, from each other. And that applies to all our relationships. It's our relationship with God. Are we spending time in prayer? Are we spending time reading His Word? Are we spending time discipling and being discipled? It it, it applies to our relationship with our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, whoever that is. You know, I I can't I can't grow in relationship with my wife D if I'm never around. right? I come home from work and the first thing I do is I go up in the office and I close the door because I got really important stuff to do. I mean, we we don't grow together when I do silly stuff like that. Excuse me, if I did silly stuff like that, I don't want to imply that I do. So I, I think there are some questions that we want to ask ourselves that can be helpful to assess or evaluate. You know, how how, how much effort are we putting in? How intentional are we being about building strong relationships with others? You know, do we talk about relationships or do we work on relationships? See, there's a big difference between, hey, we got to get together sometime, see so you bye, versus, hey, pull out your pull out your phone, man. Let's see, what, what do you got next week? When can we get together? Let's, let's set a date right now. There's a huge difference in those two. Do you, do you view relationships as like a target of opportunity? Like, hey, I got a little bit of white space. I'll squeeze you in. Or do you view relationships as, hey, this is important. Let's make this a priority to get together. Here in a, in a church, in a community of believers, You know, how, how do we build relationships among ourselves? You know, do, we, do we come during the music and we leave as soon as we finish praying at the end? Or, or do we stay and we, we kind of build on relationships with folks? What's the depth of our conversation? How you doing? I'm good. Great. I'm glad to hear it. See you. Bye. I mean, that, that, that's about as shallow as you can get. Now, look, I, I understand we don't have to, you know, if we're going to be open and honest, you know, maybe vulnerable with each other, I mean, we do want to do that. that. I'm not suggesting that we have to, like, you know, barf on people all our problems of the week every time we meet them, you know, but we, we do have to be honest. I mean, look, being open and honest could be, hey, how you doing? Man, I'm having a tough week. Just just pray for me. We, you know, it's it's kind of tough right now. That's open and honest. Because because if you are having a tough week and you go, hey, I'm good, well, you're kind of lying, Okay. So it's really, it gets to how do we assess and evaluate the level of effort we put into relationships. Now, it, the term, I was kind of praying through this and, and praying through these chapters, and, and a word I kept coming back to, or a term I kept coming back to was strange relationships, and I, you know, we've all heard that term, and I think if you were to study the, the, the story of Jacob in Genesis, um, you know, that I think that would be a term that you could apply to a lot of his relationships, he had a lot of strange relationships for a lot of different reasons, and, and we, the thought that comes to mind when we talk about a strange relationship is, you know, like it's a struggle. You know, we we just can't. We're all maybe we're kind of rubbing on each other. We're kind of grinding. We never quite get there. You know, it's we're we're, we're we're you know we're frenemies or you know something really weird like that. You know, but I think there's another way to look at straining when we talk about relationships. Okay, one way is kind of what we see um, Jacob doing here. You know we're, we're we're making a separation, and and the best word picture I can give you would be, like when you're when you're straining food, like say you boiled vegetables, okay, well you want to separate the water from the from the uh, from from the vegetables, so you're gonna put something, you're like physically gonna put something like a colander or a strainer between the two of them and get the water and the vegetables as far apart as you can. That's a, that's a straining. You're, you're 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 intentionally straining yourself out, and that's kind of what what. Jacob is doing here when he gets the offer from Jacob. But I think Paul, we're going to go back to Paul again. I think he can give us a much better type of straining when it comes to relationships. In there, we're going to look at, uh, at, at Philippians. And Paul writes there, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, what Paul's saying here is I'm not going to allow myself to get bogged down in the past. I know it's there, but I'm going to focus on what can be. I'm going to focus on the future. I'm going to focus on what will be. Maybe another word picture for you might be, you know, the relative size or rear view. Look, I got it. We, we, we do want to know kind of what's behind us and maybe what we saw, you know, before. So we've got a, a rear view mirror. But what we're more focused on is what's in front of us. We've got that big picture. Okay, There's a reason that the relative size of a window, a front windshield and a, and a, and a mirror, a rear view mirror, you know, are, are such different sizes. And I think Paul's describing that very well here. Paul's saying, look, I'm not giving up. I am committed to moving forward. I'm going to strain and, and provide effort all the way through this thing. And what's kind of sad in a way is if you look at chapter 32, this is exactly what uh, Jacob did the night he wrestled with God. He wrestled all night and strained with him all night, but now we come forward to 33, and it's his twin brother, and he's straining in the exact opposite direction. He made a choice, this is a choice that we have. In this case, the choice that that Jacob made just to to strain apart from his brother is what leads him right back into trouble. What we see here is that Jacob disobeys God, and he breaks his word to Esau. Now, I wanna look back for a minute at Genesis 31. I'm sorry, I want to read the passage first. Um, So here's uh, Genesis 33, 18 to 20. And here we see that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe, Israel. Now, now, I want to go back to Genesis 31 for a second. I want to look and see what God had told Jacob just a little bit ago. And here he says, And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. God's saying, Go home, and when you go home, I'm going to be with you. I mean, Jacob has spent 20 years, over 20 years, being deceived by Laban, doing a little deception of his own, not being able to be with his family. Okay? And, and God's basically saying, Hey, I'm freeing you from all that. Because I'm gonna protect I'm with you. I'm gonna I've got you. Go home and be with your family. Now I want to show you real real quick here what he actually did. So this map is kind of a map at the time. Excuse me, and if you look up in the in the top there, that big oval that looks like a like, kind of like a football. Okay, you've got three city circles. You've got Peniel, that was where in chapter 32, uh, Jacob wrestled with God the night before. Okay, he said he went to Sukkoth and then he bought land before Shechem. All right, well, where his dad is, where Isaac is, and, and Isaac is still alive at this point. Isaac is down in Beersheba, down in that left circle, bottom left circle there. Now, where, where Esau is from, he's moved, you know, Mount Seir, the Seir uh, region is down in the lower right. Okay. He's 75 to 80 miles from dad, and he's, depending on which way you went around the Dead Sea from there, you know, he's like 90 to 100 miles from, from Esau. He's not anywhere close to where God told him to go. Jacob made a promise to Esau. He said, I will come to you in Seir. But he buys land, he builds structures. God called him you know, to go home. He stays 75 miles away. Now, it does say in there he built an altar, and he, and he dedicated it to, to God, but he did it in a place where God had not told him to go. I mean, building an altar in Bathsheba or Seir, down, down where he was supposed to be, I mean, that might have been worshipable. It might have been God honoring for him. But building an, uh, an altar while you're disobeying God, you're still disobeying God. And, and, and by the way, you know, this, this term, it wasn't like it was a delayed disobedience because there's no such thing as delayed disobedience. Okay? The delay, that's part of your disobedience. Okay? You either obey or you disobey. When God calls us to do something or stop doing something, we have a decision to make, just like Esau did. So let's bring it forward and kind of make it a little practical for us for a minute. Let's apply it to us. Ask ourselves some questions. So God may be calling us. What, what are things that God might be calling us to? Is he asking us to or calling us to spend more time in prayer, spend more time reading the Bible? getting to know him better, understanding how he wants to change us and transform us and get closer to us? Is he calling us to serve in a specific way? Maybe he's calling us to just start to serve. Is God calling us to share a witness, maybe even with a specific person, but to live out a life that witnesses the greatness of living under in Christ? Is he asking us to be more intentional and consistent in leading someone? Now, those are, the, those are examples of things God could be calling us to that we might want to spend some time just taking a look at. Are, are we really being obedient? But he could also be calling us to stop certain things. You know, is he calling us to stop and put aside bitterness or anger? You know, or calling us to stop with some form of substance abuse, pride, sexual sin. I mean, it could be any number of things. Folks, nowhere in the Bible do we see an example where God calls someone to something. They decide to go and do something completely different, and it works out okay. It never happens. It didn't happen then, and it doesn't happen now. And in Jacob's case, that leads to a horrible tragedy. Because what we see in a time of crisis, Jacob fails to leave, where it gets really ugly. He gets really ugly here. and The first thing we see is Jacob fails to protect and to supervise Dinah, his daughter. And we see that in verses 1 through 4, chapter 34. Let's read that together. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his, son, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get this girl from my wife. Now, best we can tell, Dinah was probably 15 or 16 years old at this point. You know, if you do the math, that's a teenager. And if you've been a teenager, if you're the parent of a teenager, alarm bells probably start going off right now. You know, she went out on her own to check out, see, see what was going on. Folks, Canaanite society at this time was extremely dangerous for young women. Okay? Not only was sexual activity common, it was actually a practice. It was a religious practice. It was common in religious religious practices. Women out alone were very unsafe. We just saw, what what Shechem did was not uncommon. Women could just be grabbed. Rape was common. Jacob and Leah had lived in this area long enough to know what the environment they had their children in. And when it says she went out to see the women of the land, okay, think, think of your teenagers, you know? We get to a new place. Hey, I'm going to see what's going on. I'm going to make some friends. I'm going to see how it goes, you know? extremely dangerous because she did it all by herself. Look, teenager, I got it. They're curious, they push the envelope, but they're also very naive to the dangers that are around them. They don't know the things that they think they know. If you're a teenager, that's not meant as an insult. That's just meant as a warning. Okay? Now, if there was ever a time, if you you kind of take that whole thing in context, if there was ever a time that screamed for extra care, extra supervision, extra parenting from Jacob and Leah, this would probably be it. They don't get it. Now, I want to be very clear. This does not in any way excuse Shechem. Shechem is 100% responsible for his sin, for the horrible, disgusting things that he did and the dis- equally disgraceful attitude he has towards Dinah as if now you know, he's going to go have Dad buy her for him like she's some type of property, like she's a piece of property. Look, this guy's a piece of work. I got it. He is 100% responsible for his sin for what he did. But if Jacob had simply followed God and led his family the way God told him to, Dinah never would have been anywhere around there for any of this to happen. So let's bring it forward. Let's talk about the cultural dangers that our kids are exposed to. Drugs, sex, drinking, vaping, jeweling, you know, really stupid stunts like the Tide Pod Challenge. Online dangers like cyberbullying, cyber predators, online pornography. There's a reason we put boundaries around our kids. It's to protect them. It's because we love them. And we want the best for them. We can give our children more responsibility when they demonstrate that they're ready to handle it and it's safe for them. But we would never just say, hey, you know what? Go out and do what you want. I'm sure you're smart enough. It'll fi- you'll figure it out. That's, that's ridiculous. There's probably not a more unloving, uncaring, quite frankly, lazy attitude a parent could take. Look, I got, we make mistakes. You know, we have first-time events with our teenagers, with our kids. We, we go, wow, I wish I done that a little differently. But at least we tried. We didn't just go, hey, you know, figure it out. And uh, look, parents, I know this is hard. I raised a teenager. Matter of fact, I was a single parent of a teenager. But the safety and the well-being... Of our children has to be more important to us than their approval of our parenting at that point in their young lives. It just does. You know, if, if you're concerned about what your, your children are going to get mad at you, look, there's no other way I can say it. You just got to weather that storm. Now, I will tell you look to your left and your right, you get a lot of people that can weather the storm with you. You're not doing it alone. But you have to be more concerned. Jacob and Leah should have been more concerned about their well-being of their daughter. And, and kids, that you're in here right now, okay? Your parents brought you to church today. Your parents put these oppressive rules on you and I'm being a little facetious and I'm making fun of you, okay? In all seriousness, thank your parents today. J- just say thank you, okay? Because they love you. The things they, the, the rules they put on you, the boundaries they put around you, the things you go, I don't understand why mama do dad won't let us do me do this, it's because they love you. Just just say thank you, please, yeah, you know, I mentioned a moment ago. I was you know, I raised a teenager. One of the one of the dumbest things I ever heard was a, my son one of his the dad of one of his buddies on the football team when my son was playing in high school. The guy actually said this. He said, uh, "Hey, you know, I'm okay with my son drinking as long as I'm around to to supervise it." That's one of the most inane things you could say to your kids. Because what you're really saying is, hey, you know what? It's okay. I don't mind my son learning to, to break the rules and be deceptive. As long as he learns. That, that's, that's a ridiculous thing to say for your kids. Now, for me, it was awesome because now I knew another place that he couldn't go. But I mean, that's just an inane comment to make. We have to model for our kids. And, and unfortunately, we see here is Jacob doesn't do this. The next problem we see is that Jacob fails to respond to Shechem's sin. We see that in verses five through seven. In there, it says, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, him being Shechem, but his sons were in the field with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because they had done an outrageous, he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. Look, Jacob knows what happens. He just doesn't do anything about it. He does not respond. He doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God for wisdom. He doesn't ask God for leadership of his family. He, he doesn't ask for, for healing. He doesn't ask to, to protect his sons in their anger. He doesn't ask them God to, to change Shechem's heart. He doesn't call his sons in from the field as soon as he finds out so they can hear it from him first and he can lead them through it. I mean I don't the Bible doesn't record how far away they were in the field, but but think about this. They heard about it and they came back. I don't think they came back real happy. They had that whole journey to just spin themselves up in anger as opposed to their father saying, Hey boys, come send for the boys, come on back in. All right, boys, sit down, we've got to figure this one out. He doesn't respond. He'll lead his family through the grief. See, when when there's a crisis, there there are normal and healthy reactions. Grief is normal. Anger at the sin is normal. But doing nothing is not normal. There's nothing normal about that. His family was looking for, his family was needing, desiring a proper response. And when they didn't get it, they responded on their own. And what we see is, when they did, he failed to lead his sons through their anger. And we're going to break into a couple of verses here to kind of take a look at this. The first we're going to look at is verses 8 through 12. And what we see there is, it says, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The son of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. I will give whatever you say to me. Give me the young woman to be my wife. Folks, when, when, when God gives us a role to lead, regardless of what that is, whether it's a parent, a friend, in a work environment, ministry, whatever, we've got a responsibility to lead. Jacob was taught by his father Isaac not to intermarry with the Canaanites. He was called by God to return home to his father, the land of his father's. Yet here he is just kind of looking on, you know, participating in this marriage negotiation with the father of the guy who just raped his daughter. That's inane. And, and his sons, his sons are pretty upset right now. And, and rightfully so, you know. I mean, basically allowing Hamor and Shechem to come and negotiate with them, it, it, it's only making things worse. I mean, there needs to be a cooling off period. There needs to be a leadership from, uh, from, from Jacob here. This is a point where, where, as a father, Jacob needs to just shut down the conversation. Folks, there's times as a parent, as a leader, where you just got to stop things before they spiral out of control. You know, I, I, I would t- I've had conversations with my son, and, and we do this as parents. We might do this at work. You know, I said, son, I know you don't agree with me. I know you're mad, but we're not talking about this anymore right now back off. We'll re-engage on this later, before things things go off the rails. And, And that's what Jacob needed to do here, but he didn't. He needs to get his sons out of there and start healing, but he doesn't. He just sits by without doing nothing. And folks, when there's a lack of leadership, when there's a void in leadership, it will always be filled by somebody, good or bad. And we see this happen in the next set of verses. See that in 13 through 17, where it says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you become as we are by every, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will make your daughters, to, uh, take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you do not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and we will be gone here. Now look, there's a ton of problems right here. The first one is, who's leading the family? I'm going to highlight something again here, this passage real quick. Okay? The sons of Jacob answered Shechem. And they said, we cannot do this thing to give our sister. Only on this condition will we agree to you. This has really gotten worse. Just, just, just in a couple of verses here. Because the conversation is no longer a father-to-father conversation between Hamor and Jacob, the two oldest guys, the two guys with the most experience, the two guys with the most wisdom who should be leading their families. Now what we have is the angry sons of Jacob negotiating directly with the guy who caused the sin. I mean, we, just, we, we took a fire and we threw gas on it here. Jacob's sons are bargaining directly with the guy rape their sister. And Jacob just allows himself to stand by idly, just like he stood by idly when he didn't respond. But there are some more problems here. See, not only is is Jacob allowing his sons to lead the conversation, he allows them to pervert and dishonor a covenant God had initiated with Abraham. Circumcision was a covenant by God. For, the, for Abraham and his descendants. Look, even if the son's intent was honorable, which it was not, they still have absolutely no place, no standing to offer circumcision to someone outside of the family. They take a God-honoring action for their family to, 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 to follow the commandment of circumcision and they use it as a key piece to a deception that leads to murder. If there was ever a time for Jacob to step in and just shut everything down, it was now. If there was ever a time for him to step in and save his sons from themselves at this point, it's no longer about Dinah. It's now he's watching his sons walk into the same type of deceptive, murderous stuff he's been involved in, and he does nothing. This was the time to do it. Look, as humans, we're emotional. I know some of us are more emotional than others. But in a time of crisis, our tendency is to respond and react to our emotions. Whether they fear, anger, grief, embarrassment, jealousy, whatever that emotion is. The role of a leader, no matter what the role is, is to help guide us through those emotions in that time. And look, I got it, this is hard. It's hard to do this. It's hard to have these conversations. But being hard does not take away the responsibility. M- maybe you're a parent whose child is being bullied. Maybe you've got a coworker who is being treated poorly at work. Maybe you've got a, a friend who's being harassed by number one other neighbors. These are, These are tough situations and tough conversations we deal with today. But I will tell you it's a lot tougher situation and it's a lot tougher conversation when afterwards when you're trying to have that conversation, after they've acted on their, that emotion and they've taken matters into their own hands. When we're called to lead in whatever capacity, the people who who we're called to lead, they need us to guide them through that, guide them through their emotions before they do something that can't be undone. Because when we act out of raw emotion, when we act out of anger, the result is almost always more sin and always more suffering. And that's exactly what we see next. On the third day, so we're talking about the third day, they've had this little negotiation, be circumcised and and, and we'll be together. Okay, three days after that, on the third day when they were sore, that's the the folks in Shechem, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house. The sons of Jacob plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, and whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Look, th- this was not some type of spontaneous reaction. You know, like they, w- the sons woke up on the third day and went, wow, hey, man, how convenient. These guys are all incapacitated. No, this was a plan. What's, what's even more sad in this is if you think about the three days, that was three days of wasted time the sons had to calm down. That was three days of wasted time Jacob had to calm his sons down, to keep them away from this. I think Paul, I'm going to go back to Paul again because I think there's some great teaching here in Ephesians 26 and 27 speaks to this, where he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Look, the anger at Shechem's sin is completely appropriate. It was horrible. But when when Jacob and the sons allowed that to fester and to grow day after day after day, what they did was they ran right into sin of their own. See, Simeon and Levi had been the ones who murdered, but all the brothers stole. All the brothers destroyed. They were now guilty of, of their own great sin but sadly, that still wasn't Jacob's focus because we, we see in verses 30 and 31, that he's more concerned with his physical safety than he is with his son's, his son's sin. Let's read that real quick here. It says, and Jacob said, he's talking to Levi and Simeon. He says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should, he, should we treat our sister as a prostitute? All the brothers participated in the deception, just like their father. All the sons took took part in perverting God's covenant. All the sons stole and destroyed. Two of the sons murdered indiscriminately. This was just another point where Jacob had an opportunity to lead his sons, in this case, in repentance and healing but he's only worried about his physical safety. He doesn't talk to his sons about their sin. He doesn't talk about the effect of their sin on their relationship with God. And, and frankly, we see here Simeon and Levi have the exact same interest in the lack of interest in sin as Jacob does. I mean, their response, what do you want us to do? What, what else could we do? Well, there's a few things. You could have prayed. You could have calmed down. You could have left this thing to God to handle. He said he was going to be with you when he told you to go home you could have forgiven. Not accepted, but forgiven. I mean, there's, there's a lot in here. But I think it kind of boils down to a couple of, of practical application points that I want to I close with today. The first is, is that we need to seek and follow God's will. And this is a continual effort. This is a daily effort. This is often multiple times in a day. You know, as things may pop up, things pop back in our mind, situations come to us. And you notice here that the application is not seek God's will. The application is seek and follow God's will. God gave them his will. They just didn't follow it, and now look where they ended up. I mean, if we seek God's will, and then we, don't, we decide to do it, well, I'm going to check with my friends, I'll see what my parents say, I'll, I'll read some stuff on the internet. What we've basically done is we've relegated God to just like another consultant and all our consultants, as opposed to a sovereign God who has our best interests at hand and leads us. In Genesis 31, God told Jacob to go home. He told him he'd be with him. He gave him his will. Jacob just didn't follow it. I think the second application we can we can learn today is we need to lead and disciple the people we're called to lead and disciple. We don't have to lead big companies. We don't have to lead big departments or big ministries or anything like that, but we all disciple. In Matthew 28, Jesus calls us specifically to make disciples. The people were are called to lead and disciple, they need that from us. They're wanting that from us. Don't let a lack of confidence or some other accusation from Satan, some other you know, thing that, that tries to keep you from doing that, don't let that lead you away. From leading, discipling people around you. And I think the last one is that self justification is never justified. I mean, the attitude from the, from the sons, you know, what, what, what else could we do? There's a lot of other things we can do. Look, when we hear things like, you know, I wouldn't have done that, except, you know, I, I know that was wrong, but, you know, I shouldn't have done that to him, but you, you, what he did, look, everything under the butt needs to be just stricken out, okay? What matters is what we said first. I know I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong hey, you know what, I really shouldn't do this. We can't justify those things that aren't just. That's just a fact. (sighs) Folks, deceptive behavior always comes at a cost. It harms people. It harms us. It damages our relationships. It damages our reputation. It damages our witness for Christ. In extreme cases, the costs are unimaginable. The results can be unrecoverable. The only way to avoid these costs is to do what Horatio Spafford did. Keep our eyes on God and let it be well with our soul. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you teach us, the way you guide us. We, we thank you for giving us a story of, of, of what happened and showing us how to apply it today. Lord, that, that, that we could grow closer to you. Lord, we ask that as as we go through our week, Lord, that this, this isn't, you know, another sermon and we kind of forget about it. You know, the song that we sang earlier, this, all the songs we sang earlier aren't just songs and we forget about them. Lord, we sit down and we, we sit down in prayer with you. And we ask you to guide us for those specific things in our life that you're trying to lead us through. So that maybe those transformations or those changes you're trying to lead us through. Lord, that we would glorify you through those, that we become closer to you, that we would honor you, we would help others. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.